0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Today, we're doing a brand new show about something we started covering a while back, That something is the move by communities across the U.S. to install ultra-high-speed fiber-optic internet systems that transfer data at one gigabit per second. That's 50 times the average speed for homes in the rest of the country and just as rapid as service in Hong Kong, which has the fastest internet in the world. The model for doing this from the get-go has been Chattanooga, Tennessee, which turned on one of those systems about four years ago and has seen rapid economic growth ever since. With that in mind, before we plunge into the brand new show, we decided to play the intro we wrote and recorded a few months ago, which, not incidentally, features the great Hong Kong actor, Alan Yu. Welcome to
2: Chattanooga, simple one.
3: Wow, it looks like the future here.
2: Of course it does. To you. Would you like something warm to drink?
3: Uh, Sure, yeah, thanks.
2: Earl Grey, hot.
3: What? That's incredible! How did you do that?
2: We use what you would call the internet.
3: That's not how the internet works. You can't just say, make me a duck and...
2: (laughs) Please be careful around the replicator, my primitive friend.
3: Sorry, what's that little kid doing over there?
2: Child, tell our visitor from the Copper Age what you are doing.
3: I'm fixing part of the healthcare system of Ecuador. How is that even possible? I'm in remedial classes. They don't let me do the hard stuff. Also, this is recess. Okay, this is mind-boggling. I need to sit down for a second. I'm getting a mild headache here.
2: Alan, come over and scan her.
3: There are indications of a mild untreated sinus infection. I would estimate she has had it for three months. There is inflammation in her left ear. It's really great. You have a doctor here. Oh, no. I work at the car wash. Okay, look, this is crazy. Just because you built up your bandwidth with gigabit service, that can't possibly result in an advanced civilization.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What's so funny? You would never understand. I think it's time for you to go back to your simple home.
3: No, no, don't send me back to Connecticut in 2014, where the YouTube videos still buffer. Please, let me stay in Chattanooga. It's so cool here.
2: Bye bye
3: uh, I hate it back here. I'm going to demand that Comcast build something like that for us here in Connecticut. I'm going to start working on a proposal right now. Whoa, Ernest Goes to Jail is on. I love that movie. I'm just going to watch that first and then write up the, you know, what the whatever it is called. Meanwhile, listen to the show. About.
0: know
4: what I mean?
3: This movie is hilarious. Anyway, here's um, what's-his-name-talking-about-whatever.
2: Right,
1: <laughs> See, I don't think she's going to write that letter now. That's the feeling that I, I got back then, and I get it now. And anyway, Comcast is going to build that system for you. Maybe somebody else is. That's what we're here to talk about today. There's been an announcement during the last 24 hours, uh, and uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about what that means but before we do that, let's kind of reset the subject. I did my humble best to explain it, uh, but uh, as we go into this, Ellen Katz, who's the Connecticut Consumer Council, who's been uh, spearheading this effort, is here in the studio with me, as she was last time we did this show. Blair Levin, Executive Director of GigU, a consortium of three dozen university communities seeking to accelerate the deployment of this next generation broadband network, uh, is uh, going to be joining us by phone in just, just a second. Let me tell you also as we go along here, we'll have Tony Harp, she's the mayor of New Haven, Corinne Hill, the Executive director of the Chattanooga Public Library, that wondrous place that you just heard about. will join us a little bit later. We'll also have uh, a spokesperson, a site director from Jackson Labs talk about the implication for uh, high-tech biotech companies for uh, having this kind of digital infrastructure. Uh, But Ellen, uh, let's begin. I mean, really, we're talking about a series of problems, and I think it's fair to call them problems too, which is that Internet service in the United States is not as fast as as it is in a lot of maybe most uh, comparable industrialized uh, countries. It's also more expensive here, a whole separate set of issues, but uh, not one that's completely unlinked from this. Um, And and so uh, explain what it is that, um, what kind of difference it makes to have this kind of service. You've been doing kind of a listening tour, trying to talk to people around uh, Connecticut uh, about what the need is, what they see the change uh, that would occur I- if something like this were installed. What did you find out?
4: Sure. First of all, thank you, Colin, for having me back on the show. A couple of things on the listening tour. I think we can talk about immediate needs. We heard a lot about that from businesses, high-tech companies. We're going to have uh, Dr. Yoe Rogers from Jackson Labs on. She's going to talk about um, how they move data today. And so um, at the press conference yesterday, we had a number of companies come in who talked about the way they um, use bandwidth in their everyday uh, business right now and how they either pay a lot of money for it or don't have it and are going to extremes to try to address the lack of connectivity, the bandwidth that they have right now. And then there's the what is sort of emerging and by all indications, will be growing, which is the consumer market, particularly the at-home. We're moving from, it used to be you'd uh, work at home on your day off, and now we're talking about people who want to have digital offices, which requires big bandwidth to do a video conference with somebody on the other side of the state or the other side of the world. uh, It's very hard to do that under the current system, which is, as you, uh, the current average speed in Connecticut is about 9 um, megabits, So we're talking about going from nine to a thousand. Mm-hmm. So um, and there's lots of ways that both business the business need is present and growing and then the home use is developing and only looks to be getting bigger.
1: So um, let's talk to Blair Levin here. Uh, Blair, there's a number of ways that communities around the country try to solve this problem. Assuming they identify this as a problem, uh, there are ways to solve it. You can wave frantically and hope you get Google's uh, attention uh, that worked uh, out in Kansas City. Uh, You can uh, hope somebody does it in your your own town, whether uh, it's like Chattanooga, where the government did it itself, or uh, in Springfield, Vermont, I think a tiny telco uh, up there did it with a pretty large dose of... Of federal money or the kinds of projects that you're overseeing. But but what am I leaving out? I mean, let's say that you're, uh, you're a, a town in Connecticut and you're thinking, wow, uh, I should have this. Um, how do you get it?
5: <laughs> well, the first thing to understand is hope is not a strategy mm-hmm. or a plan. Uh, it actually takes action. The second thing to understand is uh, there are a series of models now for action, all of which improve the situation relative to the status quo. That is, you can look at what Louisville did where they put out an RFP that is somewhat similar to what I think Mayor Harp will talk about and what what Ellen, the effort that Ellen led. Uh, There's something that North Carolina did which kind of takes that Louisville thing and expands it not just to one city but to a series of cities in the Research Triangle Park area. Um, There are other things that uh, various cities have done. Uh, The key thing is to pull together the stakeholders and try to figure out what it is, what the community most wants, and how do we speak to the, the world of providers and say, look, we're willing to do certain things if you will upgrade the network. Because, as you said in the introduction, nobody really wants to live in a future in which the only choice is between cable and copper. You want to live in a world in which the future is a, at a minimum a choice between cable and fiber, because both of those can give you... Uh, it's a kind of bandwidth that eliminates constraints on innovation and use. And so what the uh, communities in Connecticut offered yesterday was precisely this kind of asking the question and saying to service providers, we want to live in the future. Here are some things we're willing to do. Um, what do we need to do to get you to upgrade our networks?
1: So, Blair, just in terms of um, how the United States developed here, it, it does seem as though, uh, pick a, another industrialized country, uh, it's pretty good bet they're ahead of us that uh, an awful lot of them have this. They have high, this ultra-high-speed internet, and, and it's a lot cheaper than our low-speed int- internet. Is this because of the way we developed internet service in this country? I mean, right now, the biggest cable television provider is also the biggest internet access provider. We all know the yeah. name of that. Is, is that. Is that part of the problem, that we didn't do it the way other countries did it?
5: Well, every well, country does it its own way, and there are advantages and disadvantages, and there are certain things that are cyclical. For example, we were behind uh, early on in mobile. I would argue we're now ahead um, because of the way we did certain spectrum policies. So if you look at fourth-generation wireless, uh, the United States absolutely leads the world. But we did not lead the world um, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, In the same way, I would argue that in the early days of broadband, uh, we led the world because we had both cable and telcos competing in the early stages. What happened in the United States is that competition, in terms of functionality, basically ended in about 2007. And about 2007, uh, Wall Street basically said to the cable and telco guys, you know what, you're both better off if you don't invest in the network and you both harvest your pre-existing networks. And remember, the first network was the telco network in which there was a deal in which we said 100 years ago, AT&T, you get the monopoly, but you got to do universal service. 40 years ago, we said to cable, you get a monopoly, um, but you got to do certain things for the public good. We never did that deal with broadband. Instead, what happened is it kind of emerged where both cable and telcos jerry-rigged their networks, and that worked in the early stages, but it's not really going to work going forward, and that's the problem.
1: So um, we're going to add Tony Harp to this conversation in just a second. But so, Ellen, some of that has to do with who gets access to the polls, right? And, and, and what have we done here in Connecticut about that?
4: We have actually done a lot. In 2013, there was an effort that was led by Senator Beth By who was at the conference yesterday. She's been a big partner with us. To there is uh, telephone poles are divided up basically into steps, almost like steps on a ladder, called gains. There's something called the municipal gain that was originally available to municipalities to string signal wires for telegraph. Um, so, we changed that so the municipal gain can now be used by municipalities for any purpose. And we did that in large part to make it easier for municipalities to partner uh, with a provider and um, develop a network in conjunction with a provider. So, they now have unfettered access, unfettered with, you know, you get to pay certain costs, but to the polls. And I've been told by folks in the telecom industry access to the polls is everything and that. Um, Connecticut now has the most uh, progressive regulatory scheme with the easiest access at the lowest cost in the country. So uh, I think we have a lot going for us on that. Well,
1: that's good news. And, Blair, in terms of what you've seen looking across the country, and, and then we're going to add Mayor Harp and just sort of talk about what the new news about this is, but, I mean, the, I'm curious about questions of scale in terms of implementing this kind of thing. Like, I don't know, I was reading about this Springfield, Vermont thing, where I think they were trying to get like 17,500 people online with, with ultra-high-speed fiber-optic cable. Well, that's, I would assume that's an easier thing to do than, than to wire a, a huge amount of people uh, i 'm wondering I, I guess i 'm asking this because obviously Connecticut has one hundred and sixty nine towns which is crazy i 'm um, wondering if there 's any advantage in having these tiny little towns uh, with tiny little amounts of uh, land mass and not that many people in them Th- Does that help in terms of getting any individual project going
5: well well first of all, let me just say that what Alan said about polls is very very important because um, there there is a the, the economics of deploying these everywhere is different, community to community, but there's a formula that's always the same, which is that currently the CAPEX and the OPEX is greater than kind of the risk-adjusted revenues plus the threat of competition. So what, what cities can really do to improve the economics is lower CAPEX and lower OPEX, and by dealing with the polls in the way that Connecticut is doing it, you really create a much more level playing field that allows greater entry and therefore improves the formula for deployment. As to the scale question, a lot of what we've been doing with You is exploring how to bring the advantages of scale to a variety of different situations. What I would say was really interesting about what Connecticut chose to do, and very, very smart, is nobody knows for certain where the scale advantage is. And by the way, it's different for Google than it is for some small telco. It's different than for, say, FiberTech. It's different than it might be for Frontier. But for each of them, you want to give them an opportunity to go as big as they want or to go as small and dense as they want. And so by doing the RFQ, as the mayor will describe to you, in a way which invites other communities to join, you get the benefits of scale, which is what we saw in North Carolina, which had a very successful similar process. Uh, But it allows basically the service providers to define where the economics make sense to deploy.
1: That makes sense to me. Blair, are you in D.C. right now? Yes, I am. Because Doug Carp and I have an extra ticket to Steely Dan tonight, but uh, apparently you can't go. Uh, All right, let's. uh, I went to college with Blair. Uh, All right, let's uh, add to this conversation Mayor Tony Harp. She's the mayor of New Haven. Uh, We haven't really said yet what the occasion for doing a whole other show about this topic is, although we've kind of alluded to it. So um, Mayor Harp's city, as well as Stanford and West Hartford, uh, are three players who want to enter this game. So, uh, first of all, welcome to our airwaves, Mayor Tony Harp.
6: Well, thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And
1: so tell us about yesterday's announcement. Basically, what are we talking about here?
6: Well, we're basically um, letting out an RFQ, and we're inviting um, organizations to respond as well as other cities to respond to whether or not um, they would like, uh, in terms of the... um, the companies that actually provide this kind of service whether or not they would be willing to come in and finance themselves a network um, either as they finance it themselves or through alternate sources to assure that um, we become one gig ready in our towns, and so that's New Haven, West Hartford, and Stamford. But we're also inviting other communities to join us if they want to become a part of, of this new world of technology.
1: So, um, Blair, based on your experience, I mean, this could be a lot. It could be not so much. Uh, uh, at least, I, I, I know I'm not an expert uh, on that, even to the extent that I just made it sound. But, but an RFQ, I mean, request for qualifications. What what, what typically would this initiate, or maybe there's no such thing as typically? But what what might one expect from from a, a, an announcement like this?
5: Well, the, the first thing you can expect is that the incumbent providers will call up the mayors of all these towns and say gee, we had no idea, what can we do for you? Are there some schools you want to link up? or there are some libraries? You don't need to go through all this trouble. Why don't you just work with us and we'll do whatever you want? Now, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying that when you start a competitive process, there's always an opportunity for a quick, easy win. But what the, what the communities that I think have done the best have said is, well, that's great, and, and we want to talk to you about that, but we want to have a long-term sustainable plan so that, as, so that more of the community can benefit from faster, better, cheaper broadband. And so what you saw happen in North Carolina was that the the six communities and the four universities who participated got eight responses, and they negotiated with uh, all the respondents, and, the, and they, they've already struck a deal with AT&T, and it's one of the uh, communities that Google is looking at. Um, and so North Carolina has gone from a situation where They were way behind Kansas City to now a situation where they may have multiple providers, and indeed there were some local groups that came up and said, well, if you'll give us access to rights of way, we can do this or that. Um, And so what happens is you kind of start the bidding, and I should say that what's interesting about it is we should understand there's a private sector need for this stuff, but there's also a lot of public goods that come from it. It is the way we're going to be delivering health care and education and public safety. These networks, and you see this in Chattanooga, become very important for uh, the public infrastructure. And so the, the communities are able to define what they want, but they have to do it in a way that's economically viable for one or more providers.
1: I'm Ellen Katzler. Let's see the Tony Harp, uh, Mayor Tony Harp, uh, does what we hope she does, which is when uh, her local cable provider, her incumbent, comes there and offers her uh, something. She says, "Well, you know, I'll get back to you. Uh, I want to see what this uh, all is. What what kind of timetable do you imagine? Let's say, let's say, do a best case scenario. Some some providers step forward. Uh, they say, "Hey, we really are interested in doing this. Uh, we'll have to talk a little bit about as we go along here today about where the money comes for this. But um, let's say everything goes kind of the way you, Ellen Katz, might hope. What 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 would you imagine? happening in New Haven and when?
4: Well, let me just first address the first point, which is um, we have two goals here. One is to bring down the cost of uh, access to consumers. Um, But this also involves a longer term vision. And I think, you know, there's a debate about what's the role of government. I think it's to bring vision and foresight, such as Mayor Harp and the other mayors have done, to say this is the direction we're heading and we need to help move that. So a short term fix of cutting your immediate cable bill, for example, um, isn't going to bring the second part of it, which is creating the vision part. That takes longer. This is infrastructure build. So um, if you talk about what Google Fiber did in Kansas City, and I understand Google is one of the faster movers, so to speak. Uh, they had a competition in 2010. They made the award in 2011 to Kansas City, and they are people are now getting online in 2014. So you're talking about, you know, three to five-year horizon. If we end up doing small sections with smaller providers, it might be faster. Um, but, yeah, no, this is why we have to be talking about this and thinking about this strategically, because we can't just decide, oh, we should have done that. We should do this and have it in place six months later. Um,
1: Mayor Harp, the seeds of this uh, question were contained in your, in your last answer. But, I mean, obviously, uh, even if you get suitors uh, coming to your door and ringing your doorbell, they're not there because uh, for love. They're there for money. So how does this get paid for?
6: Well, you know, uh, we really believe that um, there there is enough resource in providing this for the providers for them to actually get it funded over time on their own or to find alternate sources of funding so that uh, we don't believe this is something that um, will actually cost, say, the people of New Haven, West Hartford, or Stanford extra resource so that we believe that and it hasn't in other areas, so that we believe that we're similarly situated and that it's not going to cost as uh, much of, of anything at all. There's so much of a financial benefit to those who they will get on because we're going to no- negotiate that deal so that there will be more users that it will uh, actually pay for itself.
1: Um, Blair, uh, I got a couple of questions about that. But first of all, I believe you used to work for a place called the FCC. Um, yes. And and one thing, I mean, at least initially, in the early stages of this, there was federal grant money available, right? I mean, I think that place in Vermont, they got some ERA money. I don't know what else they got. That's the the the, the Recovery Act. Uh, they got some ERA money. Is, is there federal money that can roll in in the form of grants to some of these towns, or is that all over?
5: That, that's all over. That was part of the Recovery Act out of the Department of Commerce. And it wasn't built specifically for this uh, higher-speed network. It was really just trying to fill in some of the holes, Uh, but some of the money got used and effectively was just all part of the puzzle piece to create it. I should note that, interestingly, the FCC has now created a $100 million fund but that's focused on really rural communities to try a bunch of experimentation so that rural communities can get some of the same kind of benefits that a Chattanooga or Kansas City is getting with higher-speed networks.
1: Um, And and so I also want to just sort of uh, check in about... Uh, Two things that might be on a slight collision course. So um, uh, Ellen Katz talked about just lowering the cost uh, of of internet service. Uh, uh, On the other hand, if um, Mayor Harp's vision is implemented, and if I understand what we're talking about, uh, that means the providers come, they say, yeah, you know what, we can make this work. I mean, we can make this work just by selling service to people. So let us put the fiber optics up there and we'll run this whole thing. Well, then you, the question becomes, well, they have. then they charge whatever they think they need to charge in order to make this work. So is Ellen's dream uh, of lower cost but incredibly much faster Internet compromised by that?
5: Well, look, there's always a tension um, between kind of what you're trying to do in terms of the cost side and the functionality side. And the question is, how do you have a process in which competition drives the right answer? Uh Last week, the chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, gave probably the most important speech ever given by an FCC chair uh, on this very topic, and he said two very important things. Uh, Number one, that Americans are going to need a lot more bandwidth. And number two, that when we get to the more bandwidth stage, the current market structure is not going to deliver that bandwidth or deliver it at an affordable price, because there's only one choice today for about 85% of Americans. By the way, the statistics he, were, he was using, we used when we were doing the national broadband plan, and the statistics have not changed that much. Um, so, in other words, we, we actually presented to the commission the evidence that finally the the, the higher ups at the FCC are finally recognizing is really important. So we know that's true, and then the question is, what do we do? What do we do about it? And I think what the folks in, are in Connecticut are doing is exactly the right thing raising the issue trying to figure out how to deploy. Because remember, once you have the deployment um, and you have the kind of robust architecture that can deliver abundant bandwidth, the price will find itself. There's a lot of incentive for the companies to lower the price so that multiple people are on it. Um, and that's, that's what the challenge is and that's what we're seeing in Kansas City. And I'll just conclude by saying, what's really great is one of the incumbent's first response to whenever this happens is to lower their price for current offerings and that's not a bad thing either
1: the, uh, no, it isn't. Um, well, I mean, just you know, in terms of that market structure, I mean, we know basically, you look around the world, our market structure doesn't work right uh, for all this communications stuff. Uh, whether you live in Seoul, South Korea, or Zurich, or France, or Britain, you're paying less money for all these kinds of services. And for the most part, they're working faster. In Seoul, this so-called triple play package that an awful lot of people have uh, starts at $15 a month. Uh, in Zurich, uh, which is a very expensive place to live, it starts at $30. Dollars a month, uh, so there's nothing wrong with the market structure. We should also say that the aforementioned Tom Wheeler has uh, sent a, some words of uh, congratulations uh, to Connecticut or applauding anyway this uh, this initiative from New Haven, West Hartford, and Stanford. He says high-speed broadband is essential for today's communities and tomorrow's economy. Blah uh, blah 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 blah. I'm blah 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 the head of the FCC, but I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> these leaders commit to bringing yeah, gigabit. Uh, that probably come up when you try to get your radio license renewed. You. you know, actually, no, that's only a yada yada. You, they can. They <laughs> They can strip your uh, language for your um, license for a yada yada, not a blah blah. Uh, commit to yeah. bringing gigabit connectivity to the business and consumers of Central Connecticut. Today's announcement will lead to more competitive choices for consumers uh, and more in- innovation to create jobs and improve lives across the region. Hi, Blair. Hi, Ellen. Uh, no, he didn't say that part. Uh, so, Tony Harp, th- that's your vision, right? I mean, we read now about Kansas City where uh, they've uh, where this is happening, and real estate prices are going up because, in fact, there are actual companies coming in wanting to start large-bore Internet activities there. Is that why you want this for New Haven? Why do you want it for New Haven? Well,
6: that's exactly why I want it for New Haven. And we have existing uh, tech companies that are relatively new that are going to have to expand their bandwidth right now they're paying an arm and a leg for for some of that they went one uh, story we heard they went from eighty dollars a month to um, um, one thousand two hundred dollars a month you know it's it's really unaffordable if they're going to develop it here we don't want them to go to chattanooga or to kansas city or for that matter to the research triangle uh... Those are our competitors here in Connecticut and New Haven. If we're going to move our economy, we have got to have the uh, tech infrastructure to do that.
1: All right. Well, Amir Harp, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And one more thing, and uh, Ellen can speak to this, but as long as we've got you, uh, Your Honor, uh, let's ask you. I mean, there are a lot of people sitting around listening to WNPR right now who don't live in New Haven or Stanford or West Hartford, and they're going, Hey, wait a minute. What about us? <laughs> do, well, do we have to have the same slow, crappy internet for the rest of our lives? What about us?
6: Tell them, and Ellen can, can say more, but tell them to contact their chief elected official and sign on to this RFQ.
1: All right, uh, that sounds like a good plan. Let's take a break. That's another good plan. We'll come back. We've got more of this. I should say our phone lines are open. Our incredibly slow phone lines. Write- no, they're fine. Our phone lines are very good. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Call us if you have a question. All right, we're having this conversation about what it means to have ultra-high-speed gigabit service uh, installed in communities around Connecticut, uh, if that can actually happen. Ellen Katz is the Connecticut Consumer Council. She's in the studio with me. She believes it can happen. Blair Levin is the executive director of GigU, a consortium that makes it happen uh, in university communities uh, around America. Uh, And joining us now, the first time we did a show about this, we wanted to have somebody on from Chattanooga. And they said, we can't talk to you right now. We're inventing new enzymes. Uh, which is the kind of thing they do in Chattanooga all the time now because they're basically an advanced civilization. Uh, However, uh, we've um, uh, managed to sort of break through somehow. And they also couldn't, uh, our emails were like showing up there, you know, days later after we sent them because our our system is so slow. So that's another reason it was very difficult to book anybody from Chattanooga. Corinne Hill is the executive director of the Chattanooga Public Library, where people are sitting in little carrels all around her inventing new enzymes. Uh, She joins us now. Uh, Corinne Hill, first of all, welcome to the show.
2: Hi,
0: thanks for having me. And I'm stretching off the creating enzymes off my to-do list of things <laughs> that we're doing. So thanks for hitting that for me. All
1: right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> uh, I think uh, Tuesday is create a new enzyme day in Chattanooga citywide. <laughs> so, you know, in all seriousness, I mean, this is what you're four years into this now. Yeah. What, what I mean, describe the difference. Describe what's happened.
0: Okay, I, I want to talk about it. I, I've been in Chattanooga for two and a half years, so I haven't known, you know, living in Chattanooga without it, And but I've known living in other cities without it, and I'm here to tell you that it changes everything. It changes your life. I mean, if you just talk about it from a quality of life perspective, it's phenomenal. Um, I don't watch the little wheel spin anymore. It doesn't take me forever to load a page and do my banking right i mean i can get in i can do it on you know you can you can do it in no time flat um i have a hundred meg of speed in my thousand square foot apartment that i pay fifty eight dollars a month for um you know it's like i've talked to friends who have family in um assisted living and they go help mom do medicare sign up it takes all day um if you're not in chattanooga because you got to wait for the pages to load and you got to you know it's a pain it's painful to to work like that. Um, what I love about how offering that level of speed in a public library is that even though it's, and I say only $58 a month, that's a lot of money for a lot of people. And so kind of leveling that playing field um, so that people do have access to that level of speed for free is really, really sweet. And I see people a lot, people who have, you know, where we have a university in town, so folks who are trying to reach people at home come in and video conference um, from the library, which is really, and it makes it easy to do. Um, and I can't tell you what, a, just talking about the pleasurable experience of doing it, um, I think in libraries we've reached that point where in the 90s when Internet first hit, where we were all about needing the equipment, needing the hardware. And now the big divide is the is the access to the high-speed broadband. That's where it's a really a game changer. Um so j- just thinking like as a citizen of Chattanooga when I leave here, it's so depressing because I sit I'm like how do you guys live like this? You know, when I go to when I go to other cities, it's like how do you live like this? How do you get anything done? You oh.
1: know, you're well. We, you're right. I mean, and and now you've made everybody incredibly envious. Um, well, we should say something about you should see something about the library itself. You actually do have this so-called maker space, in other right. words, for kids. Explain what that is.
0: Um, we have what we call a maker space, also kind of a beta space, and you we have access right now to um, wireless service that bursts to a gig. Um, all the geeks will tell you there's no such thing as true true gig wireless, but we get really, really close, I promise you, as close as you can get. And it's allowed for some experimentation, and it's really, um, really we've catered to that, um, uh, to the entrepreneurial community, to what I would call the freelance job market. It's definitely um, played into that where people need a place to work, and they, they want that kind of access and what's starting to happen now is that we're moving into creating a what we're calling a gig lab um through Mozilla out of San Francisco they're helping us fund it and also working with our electric power board um EPB and what we're doing with the gig lab is really creating a hardwired gig environment for people to really come and build things for the build things for the gig and the way i compare it or the way way i wrap my head around it is when they invented electricity you know, you walked in the room, you turned on the light, and everybody went, "Wow!" And then it was, "So, what do you want to do now?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So you got the lights on, and that's kind of where we are, where we have so much speed. Um, and you know, you can. But what can we ride on it? What can we do? What can we do with it? And this gig lab in the library is going to provide a place for people to come and figure out what can we plug into a gig. And with that said, the city also has. Um, is in the process of creating an innovation district, which essentially is, is wrapping its arms around this entire movement and creating the density for entrepreneurs to come in and really have that creative environment of what can we build to ride on a gig. Um, so basically we're asking any, anybody who wants to come to use Chattanooga as a living laboratory, to figure out what we're going to do with this stuff because trust me i love that i can watch house of cards without it buffering Mm -hmm. and that's fabulous but that's not what this is about
1: no, of course not. Um, yeah, and and I just want to. Um, by the way, do they have a public radio station down there? Because you're making it sound so attractive. <laughs> Wouldn't they like kind of a fun perky they afternoon do. show? They uh, do. They do. All right. So, um, but Blair, I want to go over to you for a second on this because um, she's just alluded to something that I had some questions about, and you no doubt saw uh, an article in the New York Times within the last week or ten days, in which they sort of talked about this idea that you know it's almost as though uh, because the the one gig space is so big, uh, it's it's like so far we're. It's it's like a bunch of mice dancing around on a football field that that somehow or other they're, they're looking for ways to utilize the capacity. There's a lag between the input and the actual space that's there in the pipeline. Uh, and, and so the, I think there was some mention made of 612 kitten p- pictures per second just to prove that it could be done. So uh, can you talk about that lag and, and how quickly or not quickly the gap is being closed between the room for doing things and the things to be done?
5: Well, uh, there were a number of things I thought were wrong with that New York Times article, but the first one I would point out is I wish the author had read some articles in the New York Times, by which I mean uh, a few months earlier there was an article about how all these entrepreneurs were moving to places like Kansas City and Chattanooga because they wanted faster broadband. Uh, They aren't doing it because they want to subsidize the moving industry. Um, Mm -hmm. Faster broadband matters to what they do. Uh, another article I wish they had read was the one that talked about how genetic sequencing is becoming incredibly important for everything we do, but the amount of data, and, and for, for certain kinds of medical treatments, I should say, but the amount of data is so uh, enormous that it's actually faster to send the code on a, um, uh, by FedEx than to send it over the network. Uh, but, of course, you can't do real-time medicine that way. Um, But I think they were fundamentally trying to answer the wrong question, which is what's the killer app, as opposed to understanding what we want to do as a country is take away bandwidth as a constraint to innovation. And that's exactly the kind of thing that the mayor was talking about, exactly the kind of thing that the person in Chattanooga was talking about. But it does not happen incrementally. In other words, you don't take a network and say, okay, well, today you need 10, and we'll add another one tomorrow, 11, 12. What we simply need is we need to upgrade from copper to fiber. Mm. We need to upgrade to essentially an unlimited network, which can be scaled up not by digging a trench in the road, which is very time-consuming and expensive, but rather by doing the electronics at the edge. You know, Google is the fastest operating company in the world. It's taken them about four years from conception to be able to build out that gigabit network in Kansas City. Networks take a lot of time. So the article did not reflect that what we really need to be doing is trying to figure out Where do we want to be in five and ten years? Because to do that, we have to start now. And that's why it's so great what Mayor Harp is doing is because he's making sure that New Haven is going to have that network when we need it, not discover like some person suddenly discovers um, that they're, they're going to be sunburned when it's too late to do anything about it. You have to act before you know you need the new bandwidth.
1: So, Corinne Hill, this is, I mean, to use the most overworked and stale uh, analogy possible, this is like field of fiber, right? If mm-hmm. you if you build it, they will come. Right. And so you're, you've you built it, and, and they are coming, right? You've got multiple tech development hubs yes. uh, in the city now, right?
0: Yes, we do. In fact, we have a gig tank program. We just finished our third year. Um, we invite entrepreneurs to come for the summer, and they build their own applications and basically build their products using the gig. And they're exploring things like was just mentioned, healthcare, care, um, things like 3D printing and distributive manufacturing, what can happen with that. But what's happening now, which I think is really like an, like an immediate benefit of this, was um, when EPB built um, – need, they needed a gig, basically, to build a smart grid for the electric program because our electric system was shot. And they said, in, we're going to build it, we're going to build it right if we have to rebuild it. And they did. And what they've done – is they've reduced the duration of power outages by 50% in the city of Chattanooga. And there was a study done in Berkeley that said the cost, of, the cost of electric interruptions in this country to businesses is $80 billion. That's what it'd be, a year. So in the city of Chattanooga, that comes out to a, give or take $100 million a year. But by reducing it by 50%, we've saved the city $50 million. That's real money. And that's not e t b money that's my money doing business right that's that's like a real immediate a real immediate payback but going to the infrastructure, you have got to have the infrastructure in place and I didn't have it in the library when I got here and i'm st- i mean i'm still I'm still putting infrastructure in and it's it's not cheap um but I think it's important enough that I give up other things so that I can have it. Um, but you're absolutely right, and it would have taken EPB. I think they would had like a 10 or 15 year plan, and if it hadn't been for the Obama stimulus money, this wouldn't have happened as quickly as it did.
1: All right. Uh, so um, we're going to have to take a break here. Thank you so much, uh, Corinne Hill, for spending some time with us. Uh, and now you can get back to doing something that we can't even imagine, uh, given our puny Connecticut intellects. Uh, but we're going to catch up someday. Someday. All right. go,
0: go for it. Do it.
1: We're not eating your Chattanooga dust forever. Uh, Blair Levin, uh, I know you've got to go too. I want to thank you very much. Last thank call for the Last call for the Steely Dan tickets. You get to take the shuttle up, see your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the show's in Wallingford. Love your show. All right. All right. We'll talk to you later, Blair. All right. We'll take a break. We've got some calls. Uh, We're also going to talk to uh, one of the people who would probably be using uh, this gigabit service uh, right away. That's Yoa Rogers, site director for Jackson Labs.
3: Obviously, our new ultra-high-speed internet will be used for something more important than uploading kitten photos. Oh, look at that one wearing a little tiny bow tie. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Watson. For show pages, articles, and all the Faith Middleton Show staff's passwords to food porn sites... Visit our website, wnpr.org. Remember, our fifth anniversary party is on Tuesday, September 30th at Infinity Hall in Hartford. For more information, go to wnpr.org events. On tomorrow, show Harriet Jones' rockin' Scottish Independence Eve special. And now... Back to Colin.
1: Yes, I wish there was time to tell you more about both the party and Harriet Jones's Rockin' Independence, uh, Scottish Independence special. But we don't have time right now because we're too busy because we've got a lot of ground to cover. In fact, I forgot to ask Corinne Hill about the otters in Chattanooga. But apparently the otters are now so smart. They work as air traffic controllers. They land planes because of the high-speed internet. It's something like that anyway. I may not have the details exactly right. Uh, All right. So joining us uh, right now, Ellen Katz is still in studio with us. We've got calls on the line from Tom in West Hartford and Ronnie in West Hartford because Of course, everybody, (laughs) in Mr. Hartford, is very interested in the fact that they're going to get gigabit, and you're not. Uh, But uh, uh, one person who probably wishes that the uh, gigabit project was starting right away in Farmington uh, is Yohe Rogers, the site director for Jackson Labs. So, um, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, Blair Levin, I think, or somebody talked about uh, genome sequencing as we were going along here. Um, I'm assuming... This is a really good example of why the enormous amount of broadband space that, that's implied here is already needed by you, right? We're talking about massive amounts of data.
7: Yes, absolutely. um so, just to put things in perspective for everybody, um you probably heard that I was part of the team that sequenced the first human genome back in two thousand and one, and um the amount of data that we generate from just that one human genome, we actually had to build a second. Uh, World's second largest data center, just to hold the information and being able to process the information. In the old days, uh, when we want to uh, send data from one location to another, we used to have to put them on the uh, on the hard drive, and uh, FedEx the uh, the hard drive to a different location. And um, But nowadays, we can actually sequence a large number of human genome, um, but still, um, it's a challenge to transfer a large um, amount of data from one place to another.
1: Well, th- that raises the question, uh, and I don't know whether uh, you know the answer to this or not, but you're the only one. Pro- I could ask Ellen too, but I mean, if if in fact... You don't have it in Farmington, but it exists in West Hartford, it exists in New Haven, and it exists in Stanford. What good does that do you i mean don't you ultimately to move that much data that fast need an entire system that's nose to tail gigabit
7: right so so we actually do have access to the uh, through the education network to allow us to access the uh, the uh, um, the larger bandwidth mm-hmm. type. So um I have been with the Jackson Laboratory for about 2 years now and I remember the the first the first year when we actually started operation here we were relying on a 500 megabit mm-hmm. pipe and we tried to transfer a um um uh, data for um a human genome uh from here to our headquarters in Bar Harbor, going through the five hundred meg pipe and through the uh, uh manned uh educational uh pipeline. And it took almost a week for us to actually transfer the data. And since then we have been working on with with the help from the state, we have been um working on getting access to to actually uh, ten gigabit. Pipeline,
1: but that that pipeline—if uh, you were talking about it sort of Bar Harbor to Farmington again, or or whatever—that's just one pipeline. In other words, what you really want is somebody in any hospital to be able to communicate with you or anybody else who's in the genome business, uh, lickety split, with lightning fast speed. So absolutely, like, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
7: Yes, yeah, so certainly, I th- I think that you know, um, genomic science is definitely a team science and is a big data science, and it requires collaboration of scientists, physicians, bioinformaticians, and IT professionals, and so our ability to share and exchange information and data is important for the realization of personalized genomic medicine. So, uh, for us to actually expand the reach, for us to be able to allow us to to actually realize personalized genomic medicine and really mean uh, things to um, to ordinary people, Uh, we need to be able to reach out to hospitals and physicians, not just to our collaborators.
1: Um, Do you have a sense of um, as a national scientific community, as the as the United States scientific community, do you have a sense that we're behind other countries? In other words, if you're a scientist uh, in in Switzerland or Israel or, or wherever, do you have an advantage in, in being able to move these large amounts of data back and forth, at least within your own national borders?
7: Um, since I'm not an IT professional, oh. um, I. I I can only speak to the anecdotal evidence that I know. As far as I know, we are not necessarily behind because there are some um, um, nationwide um, initiatives that actually building uh, building pipeline and lambda rail and those type of things. But um, those actually tend to limit to only connecting large um Institutions or research organizations, not necessarily reaching far out to the uh, individual users or homeowners.
4: Yeah, I mean Yale, and, yeah. and they—Yale they, and UConn and Jackson Labs—they have connectivity at their site. It's the fact right. that they don't. Um, her her researchers can't go home and um, do work from home, or can't mm-hmm. um, talk to the doctor who lives in the next town over. Uh, using the amount of data they need to transfer.
1: Um, Yoia Rogers, thank you so much for your time. We're almost done with the show, but I did get some calls here, and I wanted to get one or two of them on the air. Here's Tom in West Hartford. Hi, Tom.
5: Hi, good day. Um, For all the talk of vision, I think there's a total lack of vision that I've been hearing. There's really just one simple solution of state-built, state-funded, statewide broadband (laughs) network. I mean, your guests have said why we need it. I think the fastest way to get it is the state to do it it's because what we have this tremendous income gap between say towns and cities in Connecticut, West Hartford and Stanford could do it maybe pretty quickly. What about Willow Mantic in Britain?
1: It's Probably it's a great it's a great point, although I mean I'm assuming money is the issue here. I mean the state can't fill potholes right now.
4: Yeah, I mean this is about what this dialogue is about. What there's no such thing as a free lunch. How do we get this network built to as many communities, and that's why we're inviting every community, including Willimantic, to join the RFQ and be part of the dialogue. And then um, we got to figure out how do we pay for it, and we got to make sure that um, in the process of uh, hopefully getting private financing for it or um, however, whatever model we choose, that in the end it brings financial benefits to consumers and economic benefits and all the. Um, you know the benefits of having this major pipe in Connecticut will will bring. So
1: um, I'm not sure we have time for Ronnie's question. Well, we have time for your question, but maybe not time for your answer. But go ahead and ask your question anyway. And she's not there anyway. So I mean, you know, the, the, which could, I'll ask her a question to you. We only have about 30 seconds for in which for you to uh, to answer this. But. um... You know, I mean, if, if this happens, if your dreams come true, I mean, will Connecticut, you believe, really believe Connecticut will be a different state three years, five years down the road?
4: I think, um, yes, which I think we'll be moving forward at the speed which, which we should be moving forward. Yeah. The rest of the country will not continue to move forward and we will be left behind. And Are, it's not that we're behind, it's that we need to move forward as the rest of the country and the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the um, world embraces this technology. Actually, we're a little behind. Uh,
1: but Ellen Katz, uh, I'll say it so you don't have to. Uh, Connecticut Consumer Council, thanks for joining us. Also, thanks to Blair Levin from Gig U, Tony Harp, Mayor of New Haven, Corinne Hill, uh, Director of the uh, Chattanooga Public Library. Yowe Rogers from Jackson Labs. Um, don't forget, we've got a birthday party coming up on September 30th. You heard about that. If you can't make any of the links work, just email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at org. The following night, this was great planning, but on October 1st at Watkinson School, we're going to have a really interesting forum on on teaching, just pure teaching. What if you got all the politics out of the way and just made the kids sitting in front of you in class your number one initiative? What would that be like? That's open to the public, too. You can email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at wnpr.org for more details. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolf. We'll be back tomorrow with Harriet Jones' rockin' Scottish Independence Eve special.
3: I'm Kion Wolf, and in this high-speed Internet world, it's important to... <laughs> getting dressed like Harry Potter.